0: Yeah, it's a very dire situation and it's definitely an epidemic in North America and it's something that more people should know about that not enough people do know about. I feel like actually most people have never even heard of this crisis and it's something that's happening within our own country and within Canada and it's the those statistics alone show that the situation is so dire. You know, it's great that big brands like you just mentioned who are who are partnered with Legion have put quite a bit of focus on, you know, the team and, you know, supporting diversity and equality, inclusivity. I think that's amazing. But I also think it's not something that should be limited to just one team or just I guess one group of people. I feel like I would love to see to continue doing what they're doing basically, but with more teams. We've been able to host a couple camps, one being football camp and one being cycling camp. And we were able to donate Almost, I think it was around 100 bikes and helmets to the children of the Seneca Nation uh, nearby here in Buffalo. So that was pretty incredible.
1: Welcome to the Roadman Cyclone Podcast. My name is Anthony Walsh, and six days a week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you on your journey towards health, happiness, and longevity. Now let's get into the show. It's episode 644 of the Roadman Cyclone Podcast. Today, I sit down and I chat with Shanna Paulis. We are brought to you today by Athletic Greens, AG1. This magical green powder of 75 pristinely sourced vitamins and minerals supports your gut health, immune function, and it helps with energy, recovery, focus, and even anti-aging. These are a few the many reasons that AG1 has become a staple part of my routine first thing every morning into a cold glass of water. AG1 saves me time and money by taking all the guesswork out of what vitamin stack I should be using to help optimize my health. So you can reclaim your health with convenient daily nutrition. It's easy, one scoop in a cup of water every day. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is gonna give you a free year's supply of immune-supporting vitamin D plus five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash roadman. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash roadman to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. The link and all the details for this offer are in today's show notes. Roadman, welcome back to another Roadman Cycling Podcast. Today I have the pleasure to sit down with pro cyclist Shanna Paulus. Shanna rode last season with Legion. This year, she's made the move across to DNA Pro Cycling. This is a fascinating chat about growing up with a brother who's also a pro cyclist for EF education and her heritage as a Native American and the challenges that's brought. I think you're going to love this chat. Welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast, Shanna Paulus. Paulus. Shana Paulus, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: Thank you for joining me from cold, snowy Buffalo.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's quite cold here at the moment.
1: (laughs) Uh, I'm intrigued by your background. Uh, The tribe that you grew up as part of, maybe I'm going to butcher the pronunciation on this. Was it One one Oneida? Oneida. Oneida. Close, close enough. (laughs) this, This is a culture I know so little about. Like, firstly, can you explain a little bit to us what it is? And then maybe secondly, how did it influence the type of person that you are today?
0: Um, Yeah, so the Oneida is part of the Iroquois Nation, which is basically um, six different tribes within one um, Iroquois Nation. And they all originated up in the northeast region of the US, um, and I guess also parts of the southeast region of Canada. Uh, my tribe in particular, the Oneida, is the Turtle Clan. Um, each tribe actually has their own um, clan animal, and the Oneida, for the Oneida, it's the turtle.
1: It's cool. Doesn't sound that fast, though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, we are the Turtle Clan, and um, turtles just so happen to be my favorite animal. Um, I also like to uh, refer to it as my spirit animal. And yeah, so the Oneida people originated actually in upstate New York, not far from where I'm at right now in Buffalo, funny enough. Uh, There's actually an Oneida reservation um, near Oneida Lake, which is an hour east of where we're at in Buffalo, which I'd love to go out and visit at some point since I am so close. Haven't done that yet, but will eventually. Um, My family actually, on my dad's side of the family, is from Wisconsin. So many years ago, a lot of the Oneida people were pushed from upstate New York to uh, the Green Bay, Wisconsin area. And so that's actually where my, a lot of my family lives to this day. And I've gone back multiple times and visited family on the reservation. We have family not just on the Oneida reservation, but around the Green Bay area and on another, another reservation called the Stockbridge-Munsey Reservation, an hour from Green Bay. Yeah. So I go back. I've gone back many times throughout my childhood. My most recent trip back there was a couple of years ago just to see family and host a bike clinic um, just for the weekend. It was a super short, short trip and um, led like a little group ride from the local community center on the reservation and had a lot of fun. But yeah, that's just a bit about my background, my native background, I guess, so to say.
1: How did that like upbringing, like what was the upbringing like? uh, You know, comparing it to kind of a a standard American upbringing, and like what qualities did you learn that maybe you draw inspiration from now to the success you've had? You know, in cycling and some of your other extracurricular activities, which we're going to get into as well.
0: Yeah, so I wasn't, I wasn't technically raised on the reservation. Um, but you know, having gone back so many times to visit family during the summers, during the springtime, like during spring break, when, whenever we had time off school, it was always super fun because we would always go back and you know, you know, just spend that quality time, reconnect with the culture, um, go to the Oneida powwow, which they would have every summer once a year. Um, which basically a powwow is a big gathering of different tribes coming together and you know celebrating the culture um they often have so the whole setup is like a big circle basically and there's like a dance floor in the center and then people set up chairs all the way around the the circle to watch the dances and there's a lot of different dance competitions that go on such as jingle dress dancing um fancy shawl dancing um <sighs> a few others <laughs> yeah. uh quite a few so that was always fun to go to um, there'd also be like a bunch of vendors set up around the the dance circle, you know, selling things that are um, handmade um, and it could be anything um, really. So that was really fun to go to. And um, yeah, you know, just getting that opportunity to like reconnect with our culture, spend quality time with family, um, connect with people in the community. It was always really special. And um yeah, I, I cherish those memories um, a lot. And I, I definitely think that time going back was definitely eye-opening because, you know, me having grown up in Northern California nowhere near a reservation or nowhere near the Oneida Reservation, um, I think it was definitely important, you know, just getting that opportunity to reconnect with culture, reconnect with family, the community. And it's something that I take great pride in, you know, being Native. I mean, it's not every day that you uh, come across I guess other people in the cycling community who are native. So it's something that I definitely take a lot of pride in. And it's also like the culture itself is something that I love to share with other people and talk about with other people as well.
1: Can you remember as a kid growing up, as you say, there's not a lot of other people, especially in sport from your cultural upbringing, but can you remember the first time where you had an awareness that you you were different?
0: Um. That I was different in terms of, you know, just being native or.
1: Yeah. Like you weren't the standard American, you know, cross between Italian or an Irish, you know, you were, you had a heritage that traced back to the very beginning of America as a country.
0: I would say from a pretty young age, I mean, with my dad being native, his whole side of the family being native, um, you know, we were, I feel like the culture, even though we weren't raised immersed in the culture like on a reservation like I feel like our dad definitely made like he instilled into my brother and I you know the fact that we share this Native ancestry and we should take pride in the fact that we are Native and practice Native traditions whenever we can even if they're you know just small traditions throughout our lives Um, but yeah I think from a young age like I always knew that there aren't there weren't a lot of other native people, you know, in our immediate surroundings where we grew up, where we where we went to school. I grew up in Roseville, California and went pretty much from first grade up until all through high school, um, you know, not really ever coming across another native person. So, yeah, it was something that I always kind of I was aware of just because I literally like never really came across any other native people um other than the occasional family member who would come out to visit us or vice versa like whenever we would go and visit family on the reservation
1: did you feel like a minority
0: i i definitely i would say so i mean i'm also so i'm not just native i'm also um northwest european on my mom's side so i guess you can also say that i'm this thing called white passing um and a lot of people like when i tell them i'm native they're like oh wow, that's, that's so interesting. Like I would have never guessed, like I would have thought you were like Hispanic or like Hawaiian or something like that. So yeah, it's just, it more oftentimes than not, like if somebody looks at me, they won't assume that I'm native, I guess they would just assume I'm something else or just a very tan Caucasian person. (laughs) So I guess in that sense, I am considered white passing, but yeah, whenever, whenever I do get the opportunity to share with people that I do, have this native ancestry and do practice native culture it's definitely fun to share with people and to see the surprise on people's faces
1: (laughs) you mentioned your parents there quite a lot what was your relationship like with them growing up
0: um very close like you know both my brother and i we both see our parents as one of our some of our biggest inspirations um you know because they with them both being um elite athletes for many many years they were always both people that we always looked up to and aspired to be like, um, in our own athletic lives. So my dad was an Ironman triathlete. My mom was a marathon runner and Amazing. yeah. And she actually competed in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics in the marathon for Guam. Oh, um, nice. cause she lived in Guam for many years. And so ended up doing really well there and getting to represent them in the Barcelona Olympics. So that was so cool. Um, so yeah, they were always huge inspirations for us. Um, both of them coached my brother and I from very young ages in multiple sports, uh, such as swim team and running and triathlons and biking. We were a very active family and we would always spend a lot of time actually going out and working out together, whether it was riding or bikes or running together, or even just going to local races, um, such as triathlons and bike racing together. It was always something that was a huge part of our family. And. Our parents are both so supportive of us and they always have been they've always been our number one fans as well and so yeah i think to this day we we're definitely very close to our parents and they they remain um a couple of our biggest inspirations
1: so how early did you get into competitive sport
0: i started so i i think i started doing swim team when i was like two or three years old <laughs> um yeah. And then I did my first ever mountain bike race when I was four years old. I believe my brother was about the same age when he did uh, his first mountain bike race as well. And when he was competing in swim team also. So we both pretty much did all the same sports growing up. Both started really young. Um, and it wasn't just those sports that we were into. Like we did everything from like gymnastics to, uh, to t-ball to basketball, volleyball, soccer soccer was a really big one for us for years but yeah cycling is just something that we both ended up ha- uh, having the most passion for and was the sport that for both of us ended up working out well and we're still doing it to this day thankfully
1: uh, have you still got a close relationship with your brother
0: yeah we're fairly close um though it's rare that we actually get to see each other face to face uh i think the last time i saw him was about a year ago sadly um he's actually based in Europe, so. Uh, unfortunately our paths don't cross too often, although if I end up doing more races over in Europe next year, maybe they will, but yeah, he's living in East France right now. And so most of his racing is in Europe and o- other places overseas. So unfortunately I don't get to see him too often, but yeah, I'll get to see him this Christmas, thankfully. So that'll be the next time that we actually get to see each other. And pretty much other than that, uh, I mean, we FaceTime, we talk over the phone, we text.
1: Are you too competitive?
0: Yeah, we definitely, <laughs> we definitely. I mean, up, growing up doing all the same sports, we were always very competitive with each other, and it was always a healthy level of competition between us. And I think that it definitely, you know, it it definitely added fuel to the fire and contributed to um, the athletes that we are today. Um, just having each other to uh, work out with, compete with, to push each other, and even to this day, it's it's cool to see how much we do still. Yeah, encourage and support each other. Yeah. I yeah,
1: it's it's been a great relationship. <laughs> you guys really don't answer that question of is it nature or is it nurture? It's like you had both. <laughs> like you were always gonna be pro athletes.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say it's it runs in the family. Um and it's just been such a huge part of our lives from a young age. So I guess it was kind of meant to be.
1: <laughs> but isn't it like the the hardest thing when you're a kid is I remember being really into cycling when I was twelve, thirteen, what like I missed the Stephen Roach, Sean Kelly era in Ireland, where cycling just popped. And, you know, we had some of the biggest stars in the world in 1987. Roach won the Sheer d'Italia, the Tour de France, and the Worlds in one year. He's only a second rider ever to do it. Uh, Merck's been the first. But I missed that era. And then we had a lull, like, all through the 90s and early 2000s, when there wasn't really very many good Irish pro riders and then we had like Dan Martin, Nicholas Roach, which are all basically my age. So I missed that like wave of cycling. So even though I wanted to get into cycling, I played football. I just I had no training partners. I had no friends. I didn't know how you got into cycling, but it's cool that you had your brother, that you guys could push each other on and sport like all the time.
0: Yeah, I think it, it was definitely, I mean, it was, it was great for us through our childhood and, you know, having parents who are also super involved and supportive of both of us as well. I mean, even back when I was a mountain biker, so I used to be primarily a mountain biker before I was a road racer. Like he, my brother was one of the main influences into, as to why I made the switch from mountain biking to road cycling. Cause he made that same switch before I did. And yeah, so we, I'd say we definitely have a good level of influence on each other and we, we inspire each other. And I think to this day, we are still a bit competitive with each other, um, even though he could, he can definitely whip my butt in any race that we do together. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely a a good relationship between my brother and I, and then of course, between us and our parents,
1: who's your parents' favorite.
0: Oh (laughs) man, that's not fair.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You can say you, he's not here to defend himself.
0: Okay. Me, I guess.
1: (laughs) So like, I'm, I'm interested to know, like there's only a few seats at the top table in the sport. And you've been lucky enough, and your brother's lucky enough, to make a career out of cycling. Very few people get to rip out a poster from a book when they're a child and get to live that dream, get to travel the world, race their bikes, have all the cool fancy new wheels and kit, fans on the side of the road cheering their name. What do you think is so special about you?
0: Well, hmm, that's a great question. I guess for me personally, like one of the things that I think makes me a bit different than a lot of other Pro cyclists is, and I'm not saying that there aren't other pro cyclists out there who, who are into the same things or who do the same things outside of cycling, but I tend to do a lot of nonprofit work through my foundation called the Dreamcatcher Foundation. And it's something that I have a huge passion for, you know, the nonprofit work, giving back to Native communities. So basically our foundation, main goal behind it is to uh, empower Native youth through sports such as cycling and football. Um, and I say football only because my fiance is a professional football player. So
1: yeah, we call that America, we call it American football, <laughs> American
0: football. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it's a, it's a foundation that it's what we started back in 2019. And, um, we've been able to host a couple camps, one being football camp and one being a cycling camp, um, which actually took place this past spring and we were able to donate almost, I think it was around 100 bikes and helmets to the children of the Seneca Nation uh, nearby here in Buffalo. So that was pretty incredible, you know, just being able to give that many bikes and helmets to the native youth from the Seneca Nation and being able to talk to them about bike safety, share with them what our lives are like as professional athletes, and then also getting to do some riding with them one-on-one, that was pretty incredible.
1: We are happy to have HVMN as one of today's show sponsors. There's been a huge buzz in the cycling world about ketones and their effects on focus, weight management and performance. But what are ketones? Well, ketones are a natural source of fuel for your body. They're up to 28% more efficient than glucose, making them an incredible fuel source for long endurance rides or even races. After overindulging a little bit in the holiday period, I'm doubling back down on my diet and I've been using ketones along with intermittent fasting to get dialed back and into my optimum race weight. I'm taking them as soon as I wake in the morning and it's not only suppressing my hunger, it's improving my focus and I actually have a lot of energy, which is opposed to when I intermittent fast without ketones. I find myself tired, sometimes irritable and can't focus on tasks that well. If you want to check them out and give them a try for yourself, head on over to hvmn.com forward slash roadman and use the code ROADMAN at checkout to save 20% off your order. If you're looking to up your form, double down and get an edge this season, this may be exactly what you're looking for. Head on over to hvmn.com forward slash roadman and use the code ROADMAN at checkout to save 20% on your order. All the details of this offer are in today's show notes. So, what is it about the foundation do you think gives you, like, it gives you an extra purpose to kick on in the bike? It gives you, like, an extra motivation, an extra spark to separate yourself and go the extra yard. That maybe other bike racers won't do that solely for a check, that you have, you know, more of a, more meaning behind your profession, for want of a better expression.
0: That's actually a good way to put it. I mean, I, one of my biggest goals is honestly to inspire that next generation of native athletes and how I do in my career. I feel like, you know, could honestly inspire so many native youth to also want to do the same someday, you know, whether it's in cycling or just in sports in general, or maybe even if it's just inspiring them to lead healthier lifestyles, like ultimately that's, that's my main goal as an athlete at the end of the day, is just to inspire more native boys and girls to enter into the sport of cycling or just lead healthier lifestyles. You know, Native people are arguably the most underrepresented demographic in the sport of cycling. So anything I can do to to help inspire more Native people to get into the sport or just to get more active or just to be healthier in general, that's my ultimate goal at the end of the day as an athlete. And yeah, and also by just, you know, doing what we do through our foundation, I feel like that's, that's just one of the just another way for me to, you know, inspire that next generation outside of me just racing my bike.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think the sport in general needs a mix up everything from gender equality to racial equality to, you know, accommodating different sexual preferences. Like it's just straight white dudes. Like I was at roller live a few weeks ago and you look around and it's like, there's only white middle-aged dudes in this realm is like, there's a misstep been taken in this part. It needs a mixing of the gene pill badly here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh,
1: there's a really interesting guy I've had on the podcast, uh, Mikel de la Grange, and he founded a mani project in East Africa. And we were talking about, you know, if you rewind the clock back to, I think it was 1951, Roger Bannister ran the four minute mile. And he kind of arrogantly proclaimed at the time, maybe this is the peak of human evolution that will never go faster than that. But well, like, little did we know at the time, there was, like, Kenyan kids going, running to school who were late for school that were doing four-minute miles. And um, we didn't know that at the time. And then the Kenyans came and the East Africans came and just dominated long, middle-distance sport for or running for the last, you know, decade. Mm-hmm. East African cycling, he feels, is about to have that explosion. We're just so racist in the sport. we put up so many barriers to these kids actually accessing races. They come to Europe for these like pressure cooker auditions when, you know, me as a white dude, I get to go and race in France for a year, race in Belgium for a year, get my ass kicked week one, get my ass kicked week 10, then week 26, I don't get dropped. Then week 46, I hold on. And then maybe four years later, I'm Remco Nepal. But the African kids, they have to go out there and like, if they don't perform on a single audition, they just conform to everyone's stereotype saying, oh, well, they're not good enough. Mm -hmm. it's such a stacked system at the moment
0: yeah it is not easy at all i mean especially for minorities and especially for people who come from countries countries such as those that are in africa and other third world countries around the world like it's definitely not an easy sport by any means to get into i mean there's the financial barrier there's you know i mean i think most of it honestly probably has to do with the financial barrier aside from what you just mentioned with you know the fact that it's a very white male dominated sport and um that fact can make it very daunting for <laughs> for people who aren't a part of that specific demographic so yeah it's just it's things like that that make it a pretty difficult sport to get into um you know bikes aren't cheap travel's not cheap races aren't cheap there's almost always some sort of entry fee involved for every race event that you want to do so yeah it's it's definitely not easy but it would be cool to see you know, more, more programs out there who are, you know, doing things such as what we're aiming to do with our foundation, you know, aiming to fundraise for, for bikes and helmets to give towards, um, communities such as native communities. Um, I think seeing more things like that, um, happen would go a long way for, you know, making the entry a little bit easier for the more underprivileged.
1: Outside of monetary, what are the other discriminatory barriers for indigenous people getting involved in cycling.
0: Yeah, so for a lot of people who live on reservations and there are quite a few across the US, not just the US but Canada as well, um all across North America. Many of the reservations are in very rural areas that, you know, have limited resources, limited funding to access resources and not a lot of options in terms of places to go. For, you know, gear, whether it's cycling gear or just sports gear in general, like, yeah, I mean, a lot of these reservations live, you know, hundreds of miles away from the next nearest city. So I think that's one of the biggest barriers, to be honest, just that geographical, the geographical situation of many of the reservations. Not all the reservations are in very rural areas, but I'd say most of them
1: are. Do you think you'll see, I know Mikael uh, from Amani Project was saying gravel cycling was such a gift to them because they had that isolation problem as well where they couldn't access an infrastructure to train on. But then gravel cycling popped and now they can put on amazing races like the migration gravel race, evolution gravel race out in Kenya. Do you think it's possible to see a similar wave of gravel coming across indigenous tribes?
0: Um, yeah, totally. I mean, the fact that gravel, I mean, you could find gravel roads almost anywhere, I feel like in the US. And I feel like it's something that's definitely increasing in popularity. And with that comes more events popping up across the country, which is really cool to see. Um so yeah, I think that's that's a great point you make because I think with so many of these these tribes being in such rural areas, um, you know, the fact that more and more gravel races are popping up, you know, also in very rural areas such as places like Kansas. You know, there's actually quite a few huge race, like gravel races in Kansas, where there are many tribes located. Um, So I think, you know, if if we can see more and more events popping up in places like that, other places that, you know, are also very rural and kind of near tribal areas, I think that would be another great step in making the sport more uh, accessible for Indigenous communities.
1: I've talked to guys on the podcast, and one interview stands out in my mind in particular, and it was a guy, and he was living in a very working class environment, and he was talking about the importance of role models. So as a child growing up, the only people he's seen that made any cash in this very working class environment were people that got out and became professional athletes or people that became criminals. They were the only two paths that he's seen. So I wonder, is there like a, is there almost a sense of can't see me, can't be me? Like there's not those positive role models in these communities for someone to even realize that cycling is a career path. Maybe they don't know. I've heard, you know, I've had Corey Williams on the podcast, a teammate of yours, and Corey was talking about growing up in the hood. He didn't even know marketing was a job. He didn't know this was a thing because he didn't know anybody who was a marketer. Then it's only as you travel through life and you get your eyes open and say, actually, there's all these different career paths. Is there even visibility in the native tribes to know that professional cyclist is an occupation they could pursue?
0: That's a great question. Um, actually, <laughs> now that I think about it, I think there's really only there's really only a few native people I think at the professional level of, in the sport of cycling, um, and I guess that would include you know my brother and I. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Cole House. He's also of Oneida descent and actually lives in Oneida, Wisconsin. He did a lot of road, mountain biking, fat biking. He's got a couple, I think a couple national titles, but yeah, other, I mean, other than that, I can't really think of really any other native professional cyclists out there at the moment. I know that there are quite a few who are not at the pro level, but who are actually getting into racing, such as gravel, mountain biking, road, things like that, but still Um, With that said, I mean, like I said before, Native American people are probably one of the more underrepresented demographics in the sport of cycling um, and in most sports in general. Um, So, yeah, I think with that said, there's not a lot of, um, I guess, exposure um, for Native people, um, like direct exposure to, you know, professional cyclists. And that could pose a problem in many ways. I think that's, it's something that I take to heart because I, you know, being Native, like one of my goals is to inspire more people to enter into the sport who are Indigenous. And I think one of the ways that I've been able to do that, like I said before, has been through our foundation. Um, I've also gone to a couple different reservations in the past and um, hosted clinics and just talked to, kids from the local schools and community centers about what it's like being a professional athlete, um, what it's like being a native and also a professional cyclist, um, also hosting group rides on a couple different reservations. Um, so yeah, doing things like that, I, I really take a lot of pride in. And even when I'm done racing, it's something that I'd love to continue doing. And I think anything that I can do to help inspire and empower that next generation of native athletes will, will go a long way.
1: I have to say, I'll hold my hands up and say I was totally ignorant to the fight for indigenous causes until before the podcast, when I was researching your Dreamcatcher Foundation, like just to rattle through some of the statistics, they're absolutely frightening. Like 40% of women who are sex trafficked in the US are American Indian. Sexual assault on girls is that are of that descent are 10 times the national average. Murder is 10 times the national average. Four out of five girls experience violence in their lifetime. Homicide is the third leading cause of death in females age 10 to 24. And there's no record of missing persons who are indigenous. It's absolutely insane to read those statistics.
0: Yeah, it's a very dire situation. And it's definitely an epidemic in North America. And it's something that more people should know about that not enough people do know about. I feel like actually most people have never even heard of this crisis. And it's something that's happening within our own country and within Canada. And it's the those statistics alone show that the situation is so dire that there needs to be some sort of changes happening. And there needs, honestly, for those changes to happen, it first needs to start with more people knowing about the problem, because I feel like there's just not enough exposure and not enough people who are actually like knowledgeable on this actually happening. And it's just very sad.
1: Like it's interesting. If you trace the origins of entertainment back when they started fighting in the Colosseum, when gladiators would fight in the Colosseum, that whole idea came up because the Roman emperors at the time, there were so many serious issues going on, you know, comparable issues to what we're talking about here, where they were, really struggling to figure out how to govern in Rome. And they decided there was too much of a spotlight on serious issues. So they needed to distract people. They needed to stop people talking about these serious issues. So they created gladiatorial fighting in the coliseums, And now people stopped worrying about monetary policy, economic policy, social injustice. And they started saying, oh, well, you know, who's fighting in the gladiators tonight? You know, Marcus Aurelius is fighting whatever other gladiator... And we still do that. Like, we're still obsessed with, you know, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, or, you know, X factor. People care more about the trivialities in life than they care about real serious issues that are affecting people. And it's a sad mm-hmm. condemnation of the direction we've gone.
0: Yeah, and, you know, it's something that's been happening for, I mean, ever since, you know, the origin of our this modern-day country. Basically, it all started back in the colonization days, you know, when... Um, You know, people from Europe started coming over to to North America, and it's it's something that's it's been going on for hundreds of years. And the fact that it's still bad to this day, you know, that these crimes are still happening, and the statistics are as bad as they are, just it says a lot in terms of how much exposure this crisis is getting, which is very little to none. I mean, you can ask almost anybody that lives in the U.S. if they've heard of the MMIWG crisis, and I can almost guarantee you that. Probably 95% of the people you ask about it have never heard of it before. That just goes to show how much exposure that this issue is getting, which is very little to none. And it's just very unfortunate. And that's just another part of what our foundation does is to shed light on the MMIWG crisis because we feel like there's definitely not enough being done in terms of, you know, getting the word out there about this happening and how dire the situation is.
1: I'm hoping the podcast can shine a little bit more of a light on it, but I want to take a little bit of a left turn and, uh, surprisingly for a cycling podcast, we better talk a little bit about cycling.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> You're writing
1: for Legion. How's that?
0: It's been great. Yeah. My first year riding for them. It's been an amazing year. I honestly can say that this year has probably been my best year yet, uh, in terms of racing and performance and, and whatnot. Um, yeah, I just before last year, I, I really wanted to make a switch from my team that I had been with, cause I had been with my previous team for about five years and, um, what Legion was all about, you know, how they're all about inclusivity, equality, diversity really kind of was the main, those were the main things that attracted to them, them to me at first and vice versa, I guess. Um, and I feel like our, our values just really align very well, you know, um, what I'm doing with my foundation, everything I do off the bike and then what they're all about with diversity, equality, inclusivity. I feel like everything just kind of seemed like it would fit really well, um, values aligning and all. And so I think, yeah, this year it was a very great fit with that said, um, they've done a lot in terms of, you know, helping spread the word about me and my foundation and the work we do. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been amazing. And I love also the community work that the team does as well. You know, giving back to communities, um, donating bikes to to kids in need, doing work with a nonprofit called Cycle Kids, which um, basically provides bikes for for children through schools. Um, I think it's through PE programs. But yeah, it's it's been a great experience this whole year, and I've had so much fun with the team. Everyone gets along really well. I love all my teammates. The racing's been incredible. It's always fun to get to do a full on lead out train at the end of every single crit race that we do, which I had never really done a whole lot of in the past. So yeah, it's been a great dynamic. I will be actually switching teams next year. I'll be joining DNA cycling just so I can have more exposure over in Europe, do more road and stage racing, which will be a big goal of mine next year along with track racing. But yeah, like I have only positive things to say about Legion. I loved my time with them and yeah, they're really an amazing team all around can't thank justin cory and cj enough for everything that they've done
1: i always wonder and me and Corey chat is uh, quite lent about this as well like you've a lot of big brands are involved in legion like it's a good team it's a good program but with respect to it, it it's a continental setup you know it's division three in cycling terms and we've a lot of big brands involved in it you know swift rafa specialized how exploitive are those brands by being involved? How much of it for them is a box-ticking exercise on diversity? It's like, there's not enough being done by the big brands to promote diversity in cycling. And I wonder then, when you get involved in one team like this, is that like box-ticked? We've ticked our diversity quota for the season. Now we can go back to just maximizing profits and totally ignoring the larger diversity problem we have within the sport.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, it's great that big brands, like you just mentioned, who are who are partnered with Legion, um, have put quite a bit of focus on, you know, the team and, you know, supporting diversity and equality, inclusivity. I think that's amazing. But I also think it's not something that should be limited to just one team or just, I guess, one group of people. I feel like I would love to see generally just more... To continue doing what they're doing, basically, but with more teams, different groups of people, which I think some brands are definitely doing. Uh, I think more brands could definitely hop on board and do that as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been great to see the support from a lot of the big brands through Legion this year. Nothing but great things to say about all of them. I would just love to see the continued support of that diversity
1: why I actually don't have a butter with it is because it seems like, I haven't chatted to Justin on the podcast, so I've chatted to Corey a couple of times. It seems like the guys are almost aware that there's a slightly exploitive thing going on, that there is a corporate diversity box to tick. And they're like doubly exploiting it. They're leaning into that and going, all right, if there's a diversity box to tick, tick the box and we'll be the beneficiaries of it. And we're going to build this amazing kick-ass project to shine a light on all the causes we think are worthwhile. So it's like a double bluff the guys are playing, which I think is kind of cool.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah.
1: When you look at the state of women's cycling at the moment, does it make you happy, hopeful for the future? Or are you still in a place where you're a little bit disempowered by the fact that I think one quarter of the women's professional World Tour Peloton are still unpaid?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely been, you know, some huge improvements over the last few years. And then, um, of course it's like you just said, you know, there's still a large proportion of women who are still not getting paid any salary at all. There's definitely a very big disparity between the men's and women's Peloton just because of that. You know, I feel like on average, most men of course are getting paid much more and you tend to see more of you know, the minimum salary rule across the board with, with men's teams compared to women's teams. But like I said, in the last couple of years, there have been some changes. So I do know that with women's world tour teams, there's now minimum salary, which is pretty cool to see incorporated. Because um, of course, with men's world tour teams, the minimum salary has been a rule for quite a while now. Um, so I do love to see that. And I think that's just one step towards, you know, decreasing that that gap between you know, the pay between men and women in the field of cycling.
1: There is a women's world tour minimum salary, but I've heard a lot of girls telling me off the record that even though there's a minimum salary, there can also be an expectation from the team to pay a, you know, quote unquote, a coaching fee. So say there's a minimum salary of 30000 for the year, there's a mandatory coaching fee of 30000 for the year as well. So the cash literally just goes into the bank account and gets transferred straight back out of the bank account. So it's just there's no minimum salary they've just short-circuited the minimum salary that for me was really sad to hear
0: yeah i have heard of that too from some people and it's definitely unfortunate i mean yeah i guess it's technically not considered a minimum if you're having to put in thousands of dollars per year just to to work with the team coach who you are expected to work with so it's like you don't really have a choice in that situation I'm, i'm not sure how many teams are that way I'm sure probably not all teams, but I'm sure there are quite a few out there who do require that. But yeah, I think, yeah, it, there's definitely still a long way to go to bring equality or to bring that gap a bit closer between the men and women in terms of, of salaries. And also, like there's so many other things, you know, in terms of, you know, race coverage, just the amount of races that are out there. I feel like on average, you tend to see more race coverage among men's races than you do women's races. and That's just kind of how it's always been. Um, But I think one big step towards equality has been, you know, the women's tour to France and, you know, the amount of coverage that that's gotten this year. I think that that's been quite incredible to see. And I would love to see more races pop up that are, (laughs) that do get the same amount of coverage that the men's races do. But I do think that the women's tour is a huge step towards getting to, you know, that equality.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm so hopeful for the future of women's sport after seeing the success of the women's tour this year. I had someone send me a message on the podcast and they were, had their own podcast and they're worried about podcast growth and their download figures. And they were saying, oh, I'm thinking of quitting the podcast. And I was like, how many episodes have you done? They're like 50. And I was like, you're quitting after 50 episodes. I'm like, I'm on episode 600 at the moment. It's like, And they're comparing they're like chapter two to my chapter 11, it's not a fair comparison. It's, you're not comparing like what like. I feel sometimes we need to move away from the comparison between men's and women's cycle and just say one's on chapter 11, one's on chapter two. We just need to make sure we keep pushing it forward. There needs to be mm-hmm. a chapter three. It needs to be a chapter four and I can't remain this stagnant.
0: Right. Yeah. And it doesn't have to happen all at once, right? Like I feel like it's impossible for it to happen all at once, you know? women's cycling, isn't going to become equal with men's cycling overnight. That's just impossible. So I think if there can just be, you know, little, little steps here and there, or even like one or two big steps per year, like how the women's tour de France was a big step this year. Um, maybe there'll be another race next year that happens. That's another huge race, um, with amazing TV coverage that is on par with men's, some of the men's racing that we see. I think that that would go a long way. And I think if, We just continue with that, you know, and continue at the rate that it's been going at. I think that things will start to look a lot better in the next few years. And I'm excited for that.
1: What does a perfect twelve months look like for you? For whatever you think perfection looks like in twelve months, what has to happen?
0: I mean, I think how it's gone this past twelve months and even like the year before that, like the previous twelve months was pretty awesome. So I you know, my season started in February and then you know, pretty much until October this year. And I think last year it was up until December. I was pretty much going most of the year with training and racing. It's definitely a long season, but every year I have like a nice mid season break that I use to kind of break up that long season and use that time to, to go somewhere on vacation or just chill at home and catch up on family and friend time. But yeah, you know, just getting to travel, getting to race a lot. Um, this year I got to go to Europe for the first time and race my bike on the road, um, which I had never done before. And I finally got that opportunity with the national team. So that was, that was actually a really big goal of mine for this year. And just getting to do that was definitely a a highlight of the season. Um, also getting to race my bike on the track a few times for the first time ever this year was super incredible. And hopefully that'll continue next year. So, yeah, just getting to race my bike, getting to travel the world, um, getting to spend time with my fiance and supporting him in his football career. So pretty much every year for the last going on six years now, I always kind of go into full on like American football mode starting in <laughs> early fall or early summer, late fall into the winter months because um, football season technically starts. So preseason starts August season starts September and then goes until January, February, depending on how far his team makes it into playoffs. Um, and so, you know, getting to kind of switch gears from cycling mode into football mode is, is always really fun for me. And
1: so then he becomes a swanier for the winter (laughs) summer season. He's handing out bid on Musettes all season.
0: So he, he, yeah, he actually has gone to a few races. He's gone to a couple of gravel races with me where he pretty much was my (laughs) swanier. (laughs) So he was like standing he would be always at the finish line standing there waiting for me with with my recovery bottles um always out there cheering me on out on the course he got to go to nationals this year and cheer me on in the road race and the crit uh he also got to go to the track nations cup in milton canada this spring which was super cool because he'd never been to a track race before and got to hear him cheer me on literally every single lap and (laughs) it was quite a few laps and, uh, yeah, it's cool to, to see him take on that role. Um, kind of as my, uh, my personal swan year at some of the races and then it's cool. Cause then I can switch gears when it's his time to compete in the, the fall and winter and then get to go to all his football games, even get, I get to go to some of his practices and watch him practice and do his thing. So yeah, it's always super fun. I love the football games. I love the, the vibes and the atmosphere. I love um, tailgating if I ever get the chance to do that. So yeah, it's, it's super fun to like switch it up throughout the year. And that's definitely my ideal year is just, you know, mixing up with football and cycling.
1: China, I've loved this chat. Thanks so much for chatting on the Robot podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. I appreciate it.